Cambodia is a country on the rebound. After being plundered for centuries by its neighbors and colonial rulers, Cambodia became the infamous killing fields of its brutal dictator Pol Pot. Finally, things are starting to look up. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Tourism is becoming a major force in Cambodia. Its magnificent temple of Angkor Wat is among the world's most impressive sites. To learn more about the must-sees and the cautions of a trip to Cambodia, we've caught up with Lonely Planet's Andrew Burke. Andrew joins us shortly to take your calls and give us a traveler's update on Cambodia. We'll open today's show with a visit from my friend Don George. Don shares some tips on the craft of travel writing and his perspective on respectful and thoughtful travel. And later, we'll hear what one of our listeners wrote about their home in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, as they take a crack at being a travel writer, too. There's plenty of travel fun coming up in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for joining us. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. It's another busy hour ahead as we travel to Southeast Asia on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We're getting an update on tourism in Cambodia from Lonely Planet's Andrew Burke. We'll catch up with Andrew from a village in Laos where he's researching his guidebook to Southeast Asia. And my friend Don George stops by to take your calls and talk about the craft of travel writing and the etiquette of thoughtful travel in the developing world. We're at 877-333-7425 or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today I'm joined by Don George. And Don is the global travel editor for Lonely Planet, which produces guidebooks covering the entire planet. Thanks for being with us, Don. It's great to be here, Rick. We have an email from Barbara in Carlsbad, New Mexico, and Barbara writes, Why isn't the southwest area of France from Toulouse to Andorra in travel books as a destination? I have friends that live in southwest Toulouse, and I find the quiet, lovely villages to be true France. English is not used uh, very much, but she found that the essence of the country was right there more than nearly any other region. What's your take on this uncharted area? Well, you know, anybody who writes guidebooks is just scratching the surface, and anybody who says they cover a country thoroughly... I think they're misleading you or they've got a very heavy guidebook. It's got to be driven by who wants to go places and how much usage are you going to get to justify these pages. I always think of guidebooks as a springboard. I know where people really enjoy what they'll enjoy, and I cover that in our France book. And you're right, uh, Barbara, we don't cover that region you're talking about. It probably doesn't have the famous sites, and what you're looking for is more subtle. You're looking for the essence of French culture. See the famous chateau and go to the resorts in the Riviera and climb the Eiffel Tower and then go to a place that you've never heard of. You don't need a guidebook. You don't want a guidebook. A guidebook would be in the way. When I was in eastern Turkey, I used to get on a bus into the middle of nowhere, and my rule was to get out of the bus at a place where when I tried to do that, everybody on the bus would jump up and say, no, you must be mistaken. Nobody gets out here. And I'd say, well, I'm going to get out here. And I'd get out there, and I'd literally find myself surrounded by people who had never seen an American. I'd go to a, a shop and, and I, I would wave at a guy and he would hardly know how to respond. I would pick up a, a honeydew melon and, and teach people how to play football just because it's shaped like a football and they had never seen that and we'd be sharing. I come with a Ziploc baggie full of show and tell items and uh, sit down in a tea house and, and, and be eager to share as much as I'd like to learn from those people. Plenty of opportunities to go to places that, that really nobody writes in their guidebooks. How do you handle that, Dawn, in, in Lonely Planet? Well, we agree absolutely that the value of a guidebook to our mind is partly that we open up the country to you, we we teach you great places to go and things to do, but then if we've really done our job, we've given you the confidence and the tools to go out and explore on your own. Do-it-yourself travel is a big part of what we're trying to promote, so we hope that you will take our guidebook and go to areas that we don't talk about. For me, the equivalent of what Rick was just mentioning was in a city going to a neighborhood that's not especially explored in a guidebook, and simply taking an eight-block by eight-block square and wandering around and getting to know that neighborhood intimately, making it my own, walking into the shops, talking to the shopkeepers, walking into the restaurants, spending an hour in the coffee house just watching people come and go. I feel like I own a piece of that city after doing that, like nobody else. That's my city now, and I think that's a wonderful way to experience a place. When I have a Lonely Planet guidebook to India... 
I know every other English-speaking tourist has that guidebook also. If my entire Indian experience is based on what I read in the Lonely Planet guidebook to India, it's going to be a, a skewed look at India, i got to say. Now, of course, it's the Bible for Westerners traveling through India, but you use that, as you said, as a springboard. It makes all the difference in the world. And we have on the line Anne in Atlanta, Georgia. Hi, Anne. Hello. Hello, Don, and hello, Rick. Thank you so much for taking my call. You bet. I was wondering, how would you suggest a fledgling travel writer get started? Do you all each have any insight or key tips for us? Well, I just happened to have written a book called Travel Writing. It is designed with people who want to be travel writers in mind, and it talks about tips to make maximum use of your travel time and how to contact editors and pretty much all of the the tricks of the trade that I've learned. And we should say that Don was the travel editor of the San Francisco Chronicle for 15 years. And the issue is, to be a travel writer, you can write for newspapers and magazines or you can write guidebooks, right? Right, exactly. Those are pretty much the two big divisions. In my own story, I wanted to be a poet And somehow I lived abroad and started to write articles about living abroad, and those mysteriously got published in magazines. And I got a job at the San Francisco Chronicle as a travel writer, and the rest was history. It was a bit of luck and perseverance and getting out and getting the story, and I think all of those are key. Perseverance is very, very important. Studying the market is very, very important reading, 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 and then writing, writing, writing. Those are really, really important. I think those are secrets, to my mind, to successful travel writing. Ooh, let me take it from there. Reading, reading, reading. You know, I got a history degree uh, just for fun, and it added so much just accidentally to my my appetite for things when I'm in Europe because I studied European history. So I had to do that reading, and it really enables me to get more out of my travels. And the thing I've always thought is, when you're going to write, you've got to be right there. You can't come home and write about it. I was just at a sauna in Helsinki in a poor working-class neighborhood because rich people have private saunas and there's no public saunas in the rich neighborhood, so you've got to go to the poor neighborhoods where the community gathers in the sauna. And my towel was so wet after the experience, I couldn't dry off. So I'm sitting there naked with all these Finnish guys, and I don't have anything to dry off on. And I thought, well, I'll just sit in the corner here and air dry while I take notes. And I sat in the corner trying not to get my notebook all wet, writing everything that was around me in that sauna. And I'll tell you, that was the richest travel writing because it was so vivid. It was right there. So you've, you've got to immerse yourself in whatever travel experience you're trying to report on and, and take notes so you have that immediacy, don't you? I always travel with a loose-leaf journal. I always make time every single day of my trip to sit down somewhere and look around me and write about what's all around me to get that sense of freshness and vividness that Rick was just talking about. The the best travel writing I've ever done has been right on the spot talking about the things that are right in front of me that I'm experiencing right there. You know, when I'm in Europe for 120 days out of the year, it's mostly guidebook research and TV production. And the guidebook research is horrible for writing because it's looking at hotels and restaurants and checking out museum hours. And it's, it's quite data-oriented. And this last summer, inspired by my son's previous summer trip, I made a blog. It was just a joy for me to have to do the creative writing also. I had so much fun with it that I've kept the blog on our website, and it's just available for free to anybody who wants to check it out. But if they go to ricksteves.com and check out blog, you can get my sauna report and uh, <laughs> my, my struggling with... Did I talk about the bullfight or not? Or why our chihuahuas selling for $3,000 now in Oslo? You know, you have to be kind of a lint brush picking up all this stuff. Chihuahuas, $3,000 in Oslo? Yes, it's the Paris Hilton effect. Uh, you've got two chihuahuas? Yeah, they have babies. And every time they have babies, we sell them and pay off our credit card debt. I know something uh-huh. more now about young people in Oslo. So there's this kind of quirky stuff, Anne, that I think helps your travel writing. Let me just challenge Don here. You were the big newspaper travel editor. I'm like Anne. I'm, I'm a traveler. I like to write, but I, I don't have much of a track record. How does somebody like Anne get through to you to get her writing in a big travel section? First is to read my publication religiously. If it's a Sunday travel section, read it every Sunday so you know exactly what areas of the world I'm covering and what approach I'm asking my writers to take to those areas. If you find a template for a kind of article that I seem to be publishing, apply that template to the destination you're very familiar with. So if I'm talking about farmhouse stays in France, for example, is there an equivalent in Thailand, let's say? If there is, propose an article on farmhouse stays in Thailand, because you know I already like that notion, that idea. You're just applying it to the country that you know best. Very helpful. Good insight. Thank you. You're welcome.
One thing I've learned, I got started by just letting people run my material. I didn't want payment for it because it's tough to get the Youth Hostel Association to pay you for an article. I just wanted people to read my stuff. So I would take these funky little feisty publications that didn't have big budgets, and I knew they didn't have big budgets, and I would give them good material, and all I would ask for is credit. And it could be uh, Transitions Abroad or International Travel News. That's a good publication. Uh, There's a number of publications that way. But at least to get yourself started, you've got to be aggressive and you've got to be dogged. It's a lot of fun if you can break into that. So, Anne, good luck. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling. You're welcome. Bye-bye. I'm talking with Don George, Global Travel Editor of Lonely Planet Travel Publications. My name's Rick Steves, and you're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. Another email, Gene in Madison, Wisconsin, asks, uh, When in remote places, sometimes I wish I had more information. What are the best sources when actually overseas to get practical information on where I am? Because obviously you want to buy your guidebook before you leave home. Let's say you get somewhere and it's really far away. What do you do if you need more information? Well, in many places there will be a local tourist office of one kind or another, and that will have information for you. These days, in very remote places, there's also Internet cafes. I'm always astonished at how you think you're in the middle of nowhere and there pops up a little Internet cafe, and there's a lot of information available on the Internet, of course. And then you can also get information from from locals. Uh, You can wander into a a store or if there is a a hotel, of course, you can wander into a hotel and get good information from local people. They'll know what's happening on the ground. So those are all sources of information. You know, it's a very interesting thing. I always wondered, it's such a poor country. Well, they have Internet cafes. Actually, the more poor the country is, the more likely they will have Internet cafes because... If it's a, a developing country, people won't likely be online at home. But their kids are sure going to want to get online occasionally, and they're down at the corner where the travelers are. So you can get online almost everywhere. The uh, idea about the tourist office, it's just important to remember that tourist offices are very susceptible to corruption and payola. And a lot of times, the real information isn't available at the tourist office. They're pushing places that and, and companies that will give them a kickback. Um, I remember in my travels through Asia especially, just uh, different English-speaking markets had access to different information. And if I'm on a bus for four hours going through India, I'll get to know what other uh, English-speaking people are on the bus and see if I can borrow their literature. Right. Fellow travelers are a fantastic source of information. The word-of-mouth network can give you so much critical information about places you may be going on to, and and in return, you can give people information about where you've just come from. And if I'm in the middle of nowhere in a developing country, and I just wish I had a map or a little bit of English information, there's not going to be an English bookstore, I'll go to the one fancy hotel. It'll have a little gift shop, and if there is some kind of a guidebook, a Lonely Planet or whatever, it'll be on sale in that fancy hotel's bookshop. Mm Mm-hmm. One thing I do when I'm in a town and if I don't have any information and I want to be sure I know what there is to see is I simply look at the postcard rack. Yeah. Spin the postcard rack, whatever looks good, ask the guy, where's this, and head on out. Mm-hmm. Don, Don George <laughs> from Lonely Planet. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Rick. It's been a great pleasure. Our next stop, Cambodia. Stay with us as we learn what to expect in Phnom Penh and why the ancient temple of Angkor Wat is well worth the jungle journey. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Thank you.
Bonjour, je m'appelle Sabine, j'habite dans le Languedoc et je voyage avec Rick Steve. This was French for hello, I'm Sabine. I live in the Languedoc in southern France and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, this is Travel with Rick Steves and I want to go to Cambodia right now. And I need help for Cambodia because I don't know much about it. But I've got a man on the phone from, uh, actually he's an Australian who is in Laos as we speak. He lives in Thailand and he spent two years in Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia. And Andrew Burke is joining us. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, Rick. Andrew, when we're thinking about traveling to Cambodia, most of us think about some hellish communist place where they had the killing fields, right? But that's long ago, and now there's actually a, a growing tourist industry in Cambodia? Yeah, there certainly is. Tourism is probably one of the biggest industries in Cambodia now. Um, and the, the, the big draw card, of course, is the temples of Angkor. A lot of people have heard of Angkor Wat. Right. And uh, at least in my opinion, that's kind of up there with the pyramids as far as sort of monuments, you know, international monuments are concerned. It's really one of those places you have to see before you die. Right. What is it, the biggest religious building uh, on the face of the planet or something like that? I think so. I mean, I'm not exactly who's doing the me- sure who's doing the measurements, <laughs> but it's, it's certainly pretty impressive. It's just um, awe-inspiring, I imagine. What is it, like a, a thousand years old or something? Yeah, about a, not quite, but almost a thousand years old. And... Oh. Uh, it's not just that, though. It's not just one temple. There's like a, more than 100 temples scattered through a forest. So if you can imagine sort of sitting on a push bike or something, riding around through long roads which are shrouded in shade and going out early in the morning with the mist and stuff like that, this is the sort of experience you have, and it is really uh, something that you remember for your whole life. So it's just like a vast hive of temples then? Yeah, it's kind of scattered around a bit, and, they're, and they're, the further you go, you can, you can get to temples which are not so busy. But there are now roughly a million people coming to see those every year, which is up from, say, a few thousand ten years ago, you said. So it's, it's kind of developing pretty quickly. So when somebody goes to Cambodia, we hear the word Khmer Rouge, but actually Khmer culture, that was the, the golden age of Cambodia, or, or how would you describe the Khmer culture? Yeah, that was the golden age of Cambodia, the Angkorian period. So from around about the 9th century through to sort of the end of the 13th century, when it all kind of fell apart, but... Yeah, they've left these temples as a legacy to the world. And it certainly, that was the golden period. Unfortunately, it's not really so golden right now. Um, tourism might be helping the Cambodian economy, but the country is, you wouldn't call it uh, one of the world's great democracies. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah, because we know that, well, the whole Vietnam War age and everything, Cambodia was wrapped up in all the, all the bloodshed and the bombing and so on. It's, uh, it's still a communist country? No, it's not a communist country. I mean, it's ostensibly it's a democracy. I mean, they have elections every few years, but it's pretty much a one-party state. They sort of pay lip service to democracy, but there's not really any real effective opposition. But it's capitalist uh, rather than... Uh, is, is it actually free enterprise there? Oh, totally, yeah. The free enterprise, however, is, uh, is kind of more in your favor if you can grease the right palms. So, so it's a corrupt yeah. form of capitalism. Indeed, indeed. Right. Now, are the uh, people who were in power during the communist days, have, have they maintained power, or is there a whole new slate of characters running the show? No. Um, the Hun Sen, who was largely in power during the 1980s, when it was occupied by the Vietnamese, is, is still the prime minister now. I mean, there have been kind of various permutations over the past decade or so, but he, he pretty much is the strong man of Cambodia. and he, he... Do I hear roosters in the background? You certainly do, yeah. Uh, the background noise of being in Laos, all right. So That's now, right. when somebody wants to travel to Cambodia, what kind of hoops do you have to go through? Visas, uh, shots? Uh... Um, it's actually pretty easy. Visa-wise, you, you can just get a visa on the border or um, at the airport when you arrive. It just costs $20, so that's really easy, much easier than it used to be. Uh, Shots-wise, if you're just staying in the major centres like Phnom Penh and Siem Rip, which is where the Angkor temples are, you don't really need to have too much, and you don't really need to bother with antimalarials. If you're going to go further than that, then antimalarials are a good idea. And apart from that, the usual kind of hepatitis shots and stuff are always handy to have if you're traveling anywhere in Asia. So if you've been in Thailand as a tourist, would you say this is just kind of a rough-and-tumble next step past Thailand, but essentially the same kind of travel experience? Um, In a way. I mean, the people are a little bit different, um, and, and certainly... It's, it's, it's not as slick as, as Thailand. It's, it's not quite as familiar with tourism as Thailand is. And so mm. it's a bit more of a raw experience, yes. If, you, if you're talking about Phnom Penh, then Phnom Penh might be a bit like what Bangkok was like 50 years ago, perhaps, in terms of just the look of the place. 
having said that, the more the more tourists that come, the more used to it the locals become, and you know the more likely you are having a taxi driver who's going to try and take you for three times the price. Sort of right, thing. sure. Now, when I'm in Thailand, I'm always impressed by how genteel and charming the people are, and the national flower is an orchid, and I think of yep. the people almost like orchids. Uh, how would you characterize the people that you'll encounter in, in Cambodia? Yeah, for the most part, very friendly and engaging. Uh, people talk about the smile in Cambodia, and, and it really is it's kind of impossible to, to miss it. I mean, people are always smiling at you, and uh, if, you, if you start smiling at them as well, you get even more smiles. It's an interesting sort of contrast with, say, you know, walking down the, you know, Fifth Avenue in New York or Oxford Street in London or something like that, where if you just walk down the street smiling at people left, right, and center, people, someone would probably get on the phone and call an ambulance. There's a nutcase in the streets, yeah. yeah now, yeah. now, uh, Americans think of Southeast Asia and they, they just can't help but think of Vietnam and and so many countries in Southeast Asia were caught up in that. You'd be concerned, isn't there a sort of an anti-American sentiment even today, uh, given the recent history? No, not at all. Most of the people alive don't have probably don't even remember that that age. Well, well, that's right. I mean, well more than half the population is was born after 1980, so that's after the Khmer Rouge period. And yeah, there's there's really no no anti-American feeling. I mean, if you look at it from a Cambodian point of view, even if you were that old, they've basically been kind of suffered at the hands of all sorts of different people over the last five decades. So the Americans are just another sort of number in that pile, so they uh, just, if you like. They just get over it then. Uh, the, yeah. the dominant religion is Buddhism? Yes. Yeah. Or is there an, a strong atheism given their communist past? Uh, no. No, there's certainly, there's certainly strong Buddhism. I wouldn't say there was much atheism. Now, do you see in Southeast Asia, as these countries become more modern and secular, that they would follow the route of the United States and Europe and religion would permeate the society less? Or does Buddhism, is it just as strong today in, in spite of the growing economy and everything? Um, it's a good question. It's a little bit difficult to, to kind of judge. I think that generally, this, particularly among the older people who are now wealthier, as, as is kind of normal, as you get older, you get wealthier, they have lived through enough hard times that they still have a fairly strong belief, and, and there's a kind of a strong belief in the whole karmic cycle and things like that. So, yeah, people, they, they will still be totally aware of, of Buddhism and, and engaged in it. You could argue that the younger generation who grow up without that same kind of level of suffering and with a sort of silver spoon in their mouths, if you like, that they may not feel like they need the religion. I guess that's right. kind of common throughout the world as well. Yeah. If you if you don't if you have money, then you may not necessarily feel like you need religion. It's fair to say. I'm speaking with Andrew Burke, and Andrew contributes to Lonely Planet guidebooks across Southeast Asia. Andrew's an Australian. He's living in Thailand. He's calling us now from Laos, and we're talking about Cambodia. Uh, Andrew, when we think of all these different countries in Southeast Asia, most of us know Thailand as that's sort of the um, the first great tourist destination. Vietnam is, I think, considered the next Thailand. It's booming now the way Thailand was 20 years ago. How does Laos, uh, Burma, and Cambodia relate? In a nutshell, the, the, particularly Laos and Cambodia have uh, fitting into this what is becoming an increasingly common kind of loop that runs starts in Bangkok generally and and kind of runs one way or the other through Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, and then back to Thailand. That's quite an important part of of tourism in Cambodia, particularly for budget travellers who have a bit more time mm-hmm. um, and, and they're prepared to travel across borders and stuff like that. These countries are now kind of integral parts, whereas before people may have flown from Bangkok to Ho Chi Minh City or Hanoi. Uh, now they travel overland, and, and a lot of them actually spend up spending more time in Cambodia and, and Laos than they do in, in Vietnam. But if you're, if you're just talking about tourism in general, are they all equally open, or is one of them sort of the relative North Korea of the region? No. Well, Myanmar would be that, and that's kind of not, that doesn't fit into that loop. Myanmar uh, meaning also known as get, Burma. Yeah, exactly, yeah, Burma, right. yeah. So Burma would be the least welcoming and, and the most uh, challenging for a Western tourist. It's actually a pretty easy place to travel when you get there, but uh-huh. it, it can be more difficult to get a visa, although I think that things are changing. Okay. It's also the, this philosophical argument about whether you should go or not, that right. some people don't. Philosophical, because you don't want to support that regime. Yeah. It is possible to travel there without supporting the regime, though, and that's, and that's kind of, a, in my opinion, that's an important thing to remember, that if you right. if you go there with your eyes open and and are prepared to, you know, forgo certain luxuries, if you like, but, you know, not, not using the, the riverboats or whatever, 
that you can go there and get around the place and, and support the local community without actually feeding too many dollars into the government pocket. That's a sensitive way to travel. Uh, when you're thinking of traveling in Cambodia, is there a mass tourism front doorway to go and then the backpacker scene, or is everybody there uh, sort of in the Lonely Planet backpacker crowd? No, there's, there's certainly uh, two ends of the spectrum and pretty much everything in between in Cambodia now. And, and this has changed. Ten years ago, when I first went there, it was pretty much backpackers just, just backpack. mainly and, and some more intrepid uh, high-end travelers. But in Siem Rip, there were maybe 10 hotels. Now there's more than 300. Siem Rip is the, the town which services Angkor Wat. And everything, you know, really very nice, plush, $300 a night places, old colonial affairs, uh, from everything down to $2 a night kind of dot houses. $2 uh, a night? Yeah. Wow. So you know, right. you're not going to get much luxury for $2 a night. You no. won't get hot water. You probably won't even have a bathroom, but uh, that's, uh, that's available. Traveling in Cambodia, uh, if you exercise reasonable discretion, uh, is it safe, or what are the, what are the pitfalls? Yeah, it's pretty safe. Um, there's the, the usual kind of range of petty scams, and you've got to make sure you keep your money stashed away and stuff like that, but it's no worse than traveling in Europe or the U.S. or anywhere else. There's very little actual violent crime um, mm. against tourists. That is not completely unheard of, but it's, right. it's not, not very common. But there's reasonable law and order then? Yeah, yeah. It's one of the, one of the positives of having a, a fairly strong government, and that is that... Uh, People know that if they do something, against, particularly against a, a foreign tourist, that the law is going to come down on them fairly hard. So they value their tourism as a big part of the economy and a big employer? They certainly do, yeah. And a growing part, I would imagine. Yeah, it's rapidly growing, rapidly right. growing. Is there any language barrier to deal with uh, in the big cities and so on? Not really. I mean, especially since the UN were in Cambodia in the early 90s onwards, a lot of people have learned how to speak English. So, so English is the language of choice for professional and well-educated people? Yeah, Without a doubt, more than Chinese? Yeah, with, absolutely without a doubt. If in Siem Reap and Phnom Penh, you could be forgiven for thinking that everyone spoke English. Is that right? To varying degrees. Uh, but, I mean, if you just stayed on the tourist trail, you know, everywhere you go, waiters, right. bar people, tour guides, tuk-tuk drivers, motorbike drivers, they'll all be able to speak enough English to get you around. Sounded like uh, Chiang Mai in Thailand a few years ago. Yeah. Andrew, when we're talking about uh, Phnom Penh, the image is it's one of the grand old French cities of Southeast Asia. Do you feel that colonial charm, or is it a chaotic sort of um, sprawling mess? You certainly do feel the, the colonial charm, particularly in the, in the older part of the city, which sort of runs along the riverfront and then back a few blocks. Yeah, there's a whole range of French-era buildings going back 100 years and then more Art Deco style. Increasingly, of course, there's modern kind of blue glass towers, not very tall towers, but towers going up, and not perhaps quite so attractive, but there's lots of big trees, and yeah, it's pretty easy to so, the colonial. So uh, little stubby blue glass skyscrapers uh, indicating that there's an economic boom going on and uh, going down the track of uh, Singapore or something like that. I think it's a long way away from Singapore, but um, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the decades, I'd say. But uh, yeah, certainly there's a bit of an economic boom going on there, and that's where some of the money is going. Outside Phnom Penh, there's a tower, glass panel, maybe 10 meters high, filled with skulls from the killing fields. Most of them lack the lower jaw, so they don't exactly grin, but they whisper as if from a great distance of pain, and of pain left far behind. 18,000 empty eye holes peering out at the four directions. We'll continue with Andrew Burke in a moment as we take your calls about travel to Cambodia. First, let's celebrate a part of the American landscape with a contribution from one of our listeners. Here's Rachel Unk to read what Jeffrey Goodman wrote as he guides us around his hometown in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Jeffrey Goodman lives in Peckway, Pennsylvania. His town, in the Pennsylvania Dutch country, bears a Native American name and dates back to the time of the earliest settlers from England and Scotland. As part of our 15 Seconds of Fame department, Jeffrey sent us a hometown brag about where he lives in the Pennsylvania Dutch country. Here's what he has to say about it. I live in the garden spot of America, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Lancaster County is a place where traditions still live. 
where the old world of Europe is still very much present. As you stroll through the oldest farmer's market in America, you're reminded of the markets found in Germany. In fact, you will even hear folks speaking German, as well as our local dialect, Pennsylvania German. Walk through the cacophony of sounds and smells at our cobblestone market for bratwurst, potato salad, liverwurst, beef, cheesesteaks, and hoagies. Down from the market is the Cultural Museum, which displays and sells quilts made in the same fashion as our German ancestors. As one leaves the city, going by our new baseball stadium reminds you of our American heritage. Our new stadium hosts the Lancaster Barnstormers, the champs of the Atlantic League. In leaving the city of Lancaster, you're in beautiful rolling hills, reminiscent of Western Germany, where many of our original settlers hailed from. You will see Mennonite and Amish farmers and families moving by in their horses and buggies. Drive in any direction to see the many churches in our community, many of them among the oldest in their denominations, such as Trinity Lutheran, founded in the early 1720s, and St. James Church, chartered by King George II of England. Bames Chapel, dating from 1794, is the third oldest Methodist chapel in North America. Town names like Mannheim, New Holland, Mount Joy, and Donegal remind us of our European heritage. Lancaster County also has a proud African-American heritage. This is the place of the Christiana Riot in which slaves and locals refused to return escaped slaves and thereby broke the law in the name of justice. It is the home of Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church, which was a main stop on the Underground Railroad. Lancaster also has a lively Caribbean culture, as well as a strong Asian community. All of these different communities exist side by side with Mennonites and Amish, English and Germans, all living together in a community that is rooted in tradition and in concern for your neighbors. Lancaster County is a place where all are welcome. It is a place of diversity. It is a place of heritage. It is a place where the old world meets the new. We'd like to hear about where you live. Be a travel writer and share the wonders of your hometown. Send us a short account of what makes your corner of this planet unique. Email it to us at radio at ricksteves.com. We'll read our favorite entries on the air on future editions of Travel with Rick Steves. Details are in the radio section of our website. Up next, we're still on that villager's phone in Laos, and Lonely Planet author Andrew Burke is on the other end, taking a break from his guidebook research. Andrew takes your calls next as we explore the highlights of Phnom Penh, Cambodia. 877-333-RICK is our number. Radio at ricksteves.com is our email address. Thanks for joining us on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're traveling through Cambodia. Thanks to help from Andrew Burke. Andrew writes guidebooks for Lonely Planet all across Southeast Asia. Andrew is on the phone now from Laos. Andrew lives in Thailand. He's an Australian, typical Australian, a citizen of the world. And Andrew has spent two years in Cambodia. He's sharing some insight into this emerging destination. Andrew, thanks for joining us. No problem. We've got some uh, callers on the line. We got Doris on the line in Arcadia, California. Hi, Doris. Hi, Rick. How are you today? Good. Hi, and Andrew. Hi, Hi we're Doris. going to be starting a 30-day adventure soon to uh, Southeast Asia, and I uh, was just kind of maybe help me a few questions I have and everything. We are going to be staying in Phnom Penh yep. several days, and we'll be also in Siem Reap. We're just basically, you know, wanting to know what your recommendations would be. It sort of depends on how much time you have, I suppose. But We're going to have about seven days. Okay, seven days total. Okay, so you see Emrep and Phnom Penh will be pretty much all that you'll fit into those seven days. Mm-hmm. But uh, Reap is the, the thing you have to do, of course, is go and see the temples. That's what you're there for. Exactly. You get a three-day pass to go out and see those. What I'd recommend is that you see all the usual places, but then hire a driver to take you on, say, the third day and do a loop that goes out 75 kilometres uh, northeast of Siem Reap, 
to a temple called Bongmelia. Um, Bongmelia is a temple which is quite large, or was quite large when it was built, very similar to Angkor Wat in style, but completely subsumed by the jungle and very difficult to get to so, because it's so far away. Well, it's actually, the roads are fine, but it's, because it's so far away, hardly anyone goes there. So you can quite happily go there and be almost the only person there, climb around the temple, and it's a bit of an Indiana Jones moment. Can you pronounce that or just give me an idea how it's spelled? Yeah, it's spelled B-E-N-G, okay. and then Melia, M-E-A-L-E-A. Okay. It's in the guidebook. Oh, it's in the guidebook. Okay. So Thank if, you. I, can, okay. if I can, let me just review that. Basically, Doris has a week, and we're saying you're going to go to Angkor Wat, because that's the thing you've got to see. It's the Taj right. Mahal of, of Southeast Asia, basically. That's a, a reasonable side trip from Phnom Penh. How far is that from the capital city? The same rips, it's either a half-an-hour flight or five hours on the bus, five hours by road, basically. Well, right. five hours, so it's about 300-and-something kilometres north of Phnom Penh. So you'll take a day to get there, a couple nights there, a whole day to explore it, and a day to get back, essentially? I'd say actually three days to explore it. I mean, you just won't see enough in the, in one day. Okay. The best way to approach it is to is to get up there. So go there one day. If you're lucky, you can go out in the afternoon because mm-hmm. you can get in for free after 4 o'clock, um, or five, I think I'm actually maybe 5 o'clock now. Then spend three days seeing it. The real best way to do it is to get up early at, say, 5 and go out when the when the morning's still cool, the air is fresh, and it's a little bit before the tourist buses arrive. That's the way to do it. And then come back at lunchtime, have a siesta, have a swim in the hotel or whatever, then go back in again in the afternoon for another couple of hours. They're quite long days, but it's the most rewarding way of doing it. Well, you know, that's such a good tip. Anytime I've been in any sort of... Uh exotic, wonderful destination like that, get up early before all the tourist groups are there, before all the hustlers are out, the air is crisp, the light is nice for photographs, and then uh, get a couple of great hours of sightseeing in that magic hour time. Yes, you taught us that, Rick, when we first started traveling and way back in 1987. Oh, that's great. Now, you were talking also, Andrew, about renting a car with a driver, and I've found in many parts of the world it's actually cheaper to rent a car with a driver than to rent a car without a driver and pay for the insurance. Is that the case in Cambodia? Yeah, pretty much. In fact, I don't even know whether you can rent a car without a driver in, in Tim it's just, it's just the, the thing you do is just get the drive. It's much easier that way anyway. You don't have yeah. to worry about navigating. Now, would this driver function as an interpreter and a guide for you? Uh, it kind of depends. Uh, it would probably depend on how much you paid for the driver. Some of them will speak English. Ideally, you'd want to find a, a driver who could serve as your guide also. Yeah, and, and that's possible. But then uh, sometimes the guide will come with a separate driver, and it'll be like a van. Uh, and so the guide will kind of come out with you. The driver will stay with the van. So you sort of just have to kind of play it by ear when you get there. And, and if you want a driver who speaks English and who knows something about the place, then you have to ask for that, and it'll cost a bit more. And as wealthy first-world travelers, we have to remind ourselves, even if we fancy ourselves as frugal-budget travelers, the wage uh, discrepancy is so huge that having two people privately show you around is not, um, is not that spendy. No, it's not. If you had a driver and a guide for a day, it probably wouldn't cost more than 60 or $70. I'm not, uh, don't quote me on that. I'm not exactly right. sure, but that, that's, that's roughly what you're looking at. So that sounds pretty good there, Doris. You got your side trip out to Angkor Wat. You got your day into the countryside to the unexcavated mini Angkor Wat with your private driver and guide in a couple of days in the capital city, Phnom Penh. Is that what we're talking about, Andrew? Yep, that's, that's pretty much it. That's your great six or eight or ten days in Cambodia. That'd be great. And I have a couple more questions. What about clothes being to wear? What, cool cotton, basically loose? Yeah, that makes sense. A hat, of course, particularly at Angkor, you need a hat. It can get pretty sunny in some of those temples. And yeah, long sleeves, loose clothes, just as you say. Okay, and what about how do we exchange our dollar? What's the best way to exchange our dollar there? What you do is you just bring your dollars, because most of the Cambodian economy operates on dollars. So oh, they do? Usually, yeah, yeah. Bring lots of small notes. You don't want to be changing people to be changing 20s and 50s and 100s. No. Uh, so 5s and 10s are good, and then you can pay all your hotels, you can pay in, in dollars. It's only really for really small things, like buying a pineapple on the side of the street that you'll need real. Okay. Uh, and usually you can just, if you want to, you can just change the money in anywhere in CM Rep, change a little bit there or Phnom Penh. Okay, and Phnom Penh, we're going to be staying at the Amanjai Hotel. Yep. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I quite like that hotel. I'd actually read a little list of, of hotels here before I came on of things that I would recommend if anyone asked, and that was on it. So I'm on Jaya. It's in a great position right opposite the, the river, right in the center of best part of best place to stay in Phnom Penh. Oh, 
Uh, the rooms are big and, and the service is pretty good, so yeah, can't ask for more. Andrew, if you want to pamper yourself while you're in Phnom Penh, what's a fun thing to do? Um, there's, a, there's a place called Bliss, which is a, is a very nice sort of spa, and it's kind of very Western style, but you get a, a, a really nice massage for about $20, or $15 or $20. It's called and then, Bliss? Or you could go to, if you want another massage, you can go to the Seeing Hands, which is blind masseurs. They're more sort of clothes-on style, but they're very intuitive. They can pick out exactly what part of your back requires rubbing, which is always nice. Seeing I've hands. read about them. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Doris, yeah. thanks for your call, and good luck on your trip. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, you, Rick, and thank you, Andrew. No problem. Okay. Bye-bye now. Judy has called us from McLean, Virginia. Hi, Judy. Yes, hi. Thanks for your call. Rick? Yeah. Yeah. I just want you to know I wore your waist pack the entire time. But actually, I didn't feel I needed it. The money belt? The money belt. And where were you traveling? Uh, Phnom Penh and Angkor Wat. Really? That's interesting. So you, you, felt... just, you really feel safe. You really feel safe. You do not feel like there is any problem. And you'd feel comfortable leaving your valuables then tucked away in your hotel room? Yeah, well, in, in our case, we, you know, I, I, only if the hotel has a safe would I leave right. them there. But I think you could do that. What's your advice, Andrew, as far as money belts and people's valuables? I think it's the same as anywhere. I mean, obviously, money belt's going to be a bit more secure. It's not absolutely essential, but if you are going to carry money in your pocket, then just be sure that it's it's not all of your money and all of your credit cards. Right. Um, if you're going to leave that. anything in a, in a hotel safe, again, you know, 99 times out of 100, it's going to be fine, but just it always pays to put it in an envelope and seal it and sign across it just so that money doesn't disappear, even out of the safe. Which I found that we could use dollars everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Which was, which was very convenient, very handy for an American tourist to be able to use dollars. Absolutely. No, no loss on exchange. It's yeah, right, wonderful. Right. And even when we got back change, instead of getting change back in reels, I'd ask for change in dollars, and we'd get it back, except for the very small change. Well, that's it. I mean, there's no coins, of course. So anything which is less than a dollar, you'll get in real. But most of the time, you'll get your change in dollars. In dollars, yeah. And, and, Rick, you're right. It's, it, your words about it being an exotic destination are really correct. It really is exotic, but it is wonderful. And the people are just wonderful. They're so kind. They're smiling. And everyone wants to try using their English. The children are learning English at school now. And even out in the countryside, as we were driving up to Angkor Wat, we stopped at one place to look at an old bridge. And some children by the side of the road came over to us, and one little boy spoke perfect English and came over and started talking to us. So... Very easy to get by with English. Judy, what was your impression of Phnom Penh? Phnom Penh is really big. <laughs> it's a big city. There's no way that you can drive yourself there. You have to have either a taxi, a van. Uh, um, Andrew was talking about the tuk-tuk drivers, which are these motorized um, motorcycles that have, uh, you know, like two or three seats in them. And they're very safe, and they're very good drivers, but you really can't drive yourself there. Because in the city of 2.5 million people now in Phnom Penh, I'd say about a million people have motorbikes. So you're actually, these tuk-tuks are actually motorbikes where you just ride on the back of the motorbike? Yeah. And it's it's, 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 it's as safe as anything, and you get to see the city. Uh, Sometimes you just have to close your eyes. (laughs) Andrew, talk a little bit about the public transit. What's the? I, I know all over Southeast Asia there's such fun on the three-wheel taxis and the tuk-tuks and so on. Yeah, well, that, that's right. There's no real public transport in the sense of buses. They, they just don't exist in Phnom Penh. But everyone gets around either on their own motorbike or on the back of a motorbike, which they call motos. They, they don't go very fast, so it's pretty safe. Uh, or you can just get a, a tuk-tuk, as you, as you say, which is two seats in a kind of carriage behind a, a oh, motorbike. So it's, it's sort of like a motorized rickshaw. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay. Or the moto is actually just riding a second person on the back of a motorbike. Yep, exactly and you just, riding you just give on a motorbike. Them, you give them a dollar for the ride or whatever? Oh, that'd be a long trip. Long trip. They'll ask you for a dollar. I mean, the locals would pay 25 cents for a short trip, 50 cents for a trip kind of across town. Hey, Judy, I would think the charms of Phnom Penh must be a little more subtle than some Eiffel Tower-type monument. How did you find the city as far as just connecting in the markets and wandering around and, and feeling the pulse of that capital? I think you can you can get to feel the the pulse, and there is a little route that you can take in certain places that you want to go. You want to see the Wat Phnom, the Hotel Royale, which is the old French hotel, which is still there now. It's a Raffles hotel. Uh, there's the Central Market, and you know you can spend as little or as much time as you want there. There are wonderful silk workshops and up 
scale silk uh, shirts, ties that you can come home with. They're like wonderful souvenirs, and these are done as handicrafts by women. And that's in Phnom Penh. And then when you get to Angkor Wat, there's also Artisan Dancor, which are artisans who are doing lacquer work and stonework and beautiful things. And you get a tour of the arts and crafts there, and you can purchase things as well. And it's just, you know, so there are some upscale shopping things in addition to, like, the central market. Right. So, you know, you don't think of it in terms of all the shopping that you can have in Bangkok, but you certainly can find some lovely goods, lovely Sounds products. like you had a great experience there, Judy. It was wonderful. All right. Thanks for your call. Sure. Okay, bye now. Bye. Water-filled bomb craters, sunstreak gleam, stitched in strings across patchwork land, march west toward the far hills of Thailand. Macro analog of Angkor Wat's temple walls, intricate bas-relief of thousand-year-old battles, pitted with AK rounds. And under the sign of the seven-headed cobra, the Naga who sees in all directions, seven million landmines lie in terraced grass and paddy. Mindscape now. I'm speaking with Andrew Burke, who uh, contributes to the Lonely Planet guidebooks for destinations across Southeast Asia. Andrew, if you're in Phnom Penh, they've got the famous waterfront along the Mekong, right? Is that the classy area to explore? Yeah, well, it's actually not on the Mekong. The, Phnom Penh is at the junction of the Mekong and the Tonle Sap. And the waterfront itself is on the tunnel side. You can sort of see the Mekong in the distance. But okay. anyway, that's a small point. But yeah, that, that's a really nice area. It's kind of tree-lined, and it's changed a lot over the last few years where it's landscaped and stuff, and you can just walk along there. And there's a lot of hotels and nice bars and things to, to kind of sit out there if, if you're just on the other side of the street. Now, we hear so much about the killing fields and so on. Uh, that's past to history now with the Khmer Rouge gone. Are there museums and monuments, I would imagine, that tourists can make a pilgrimage to this and learn about it? Yeah, there is what they call Tool Sling or the S21 prison that the Khmer Rouge used. It was an old school and that's now open as a museum. It's really pretty harrowing stuff, but it's something that I think most visitors really should try to see. So it's well displayed. It's a, a powerful experience for tourists then. It, it's a very powerful experience. I mean, the most abiding memory you have of it is looking at the faces of a lot of the people who died there or photographs which were taken when they arrived at the prison and now are displayed in, on boards in some of the old classrooms. Uh, yeah, it's pretty much as it was when the Vietnamese arrived and kicked the Khmer Rouge out of Phnom Penh in the end of 19, or early 1979. And it hasn't really changed very much since then. So all the barbed wire is still there and it's not. It's, you don't have to have a strong, vivid imagination to work out wow. what was going on there. Now, Khmer, when you hear that word, is that the, the name of the ethnic Cambodians, or is that just one small part of the country? The Khmer no, people. Khmer. Cambodians are Khmer. Okay, and the Khmer Rouge should be the communist Cambodians, basically. Yeah, exactly, the Red Khmers. Yeah. And they named the country Kampuchea. Is that the historical name of the country? It is. I mean, it's been variously named, known over the years as Capuchia. A lot of people still call it Capuchia. Is Cambodia, does that, is that more French colonial and Kampuchea would be more ethnic? Uh, sort of. Uh, I mean, to be honest, I'm not exactly sure when Cambodia became more commonly used. It'd be a bit like saying, you know, America or the United States. I see. Commonly understood. Now, so the communist Khmer people took over the country, and you have this horrible regime, and then the Vietnamese yeah. come in and actually liberate the Cambodians from themselves. That's right, yeah. So the Vietnamese are thanked today for this? Uh, not really, no. You'd think that would make sense, right. but um, the Khmer, Khmer's have a, have a long history of animosity with the Vietnamese, and unfortunately saving them from the Khmerers didn't really alleviate that. Is it fair to say that communism is just distant history now and the country is thoroughly yeah, behind totally, communism? Yeah, totally, yeah. Take me on the market, in the market, in Phnom Penh. It just sounds like a fascinating market. What do you see? Yeah, in Phnom Penh, there are several markets, and the two that are most commonly visited by tourists are both still more commonly used by locals, so they're still local markets. But one is the central market, Satmai, and that's in a beautiful deco-style French building with huge domed roof and uh, wonderfully designed. You walk inside, and because of this domed roof and the, all the all the ventilation, it's generally a couple of degrees cooler in there than it is outside. 
And, yeah, you can buy all sorts of things there from, you know, a rice cooker to a microwave oven to secondhand clothes and some really nice food. That's a good place to just walk around and... Or you can even buy, like, CIA maps from the 60s of, of Cambodia, things like that. Wow. Then the other market, which is the most popular one for tourists, is called the Russian market, or Tsar Tulpompong. And uh, that's just a bit further out of town, or far out of in the outskirts of town. And that's, that's the one that's chock-a-block full of pirated DVDs and CDs and shirts and music and lots of knickknacks that people take home as souvenirs. Bootleg CDs um, and so on. Yeah. I suppose you've taken a lot of photographs of Cambodia over the years that you've lived there and visited there and done your travel research. Yeah. Tell me one photograph, your favorite photograph that would sort of sum up the magic of Cambodia that keeps you coming back. Mm, good question. There was one I, I shot quite a few years ago of a young child, maybe one and a half years old, sitting atop a, a Honda Dream, which is a small 110cc motorbike, which is kind of ubiquitous in Cambodia. And, and the kids just looking looking at the bike and then looking at the camera. That sort of summed up things in a way, in the sense that you have a country which is growing, it's still sort of finding its feet in some ways, but it's aspiring to better things. And and just the, the kind of out of the photograph is lots of people laughing at me taking pictures of these kids, and that sort of, sort of gives me a bit more context to it as well. And, uh, yeah, smiling faces. Sounds like an image of hope, Andrew. It certainly is an image of hope, yes. It's, uh, for all the problems in Cambodia, there certainly is a lot of hope there, and it's, uh, it's, uh, for that reason, it's a wonderful place to visit as far as I'm concerned. A long-suffering people, most famous for their gracious smiles. Andrew Burke, yes. thank you very much. Cambodia's on my list of places to check out. You certainly should go. This is too big for anger. It's too big for blame. stumble through so humanly lame So I bow down my head Say a prayer for us all That we don't fear the Spirit When it comes to call Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.